question for you, show of hands. How many of you have ever been to a 3D movie? 3D movie, you know, the kind where they give you the glasses? How many of you do this? Um, I've been to a few 3D movies, and I'll tell you right up front, I don't know how I feel about the whole thing. Um, I kind of like it. I like that there's some movies that it really enhances and it's really cool. But every time I put the glasses on, I think, I don't want to watch a movie with glasses on. And second, I paid five bucks extra to put these glasses on. <laughs> I, I have a hard time. I have a hard time with the 3D movie experience. But I have done it. And when I go, when I go and I, I watch a movie, I don't know if you guys do this, I put the glasses on and I sit there and I watch for about 30 seconds. And 30 seconds in, I do this. I pull them down, and I pull them up, and I pull them down, and I pull them up. Because what happens when you do that? The screen gets blurry, right? It's so trippy to me. I just love, I'm like a little child, okay? We all know this. And I just think that's the coolest little thing. But the thing that's really interesting about this, I don't know if you ever thought about this, you could, you could, I don't recommend it, but you could watch an entire 3D movie without the glasses, Right? You could walk into the movie, you could sit there, and you could watch an entire 3D movie without the glasses. You would be able to track the plot, you'd know who the main characters are, you'd even be able to make out most of the scenes, right? But you'd definitely be missing something, right? It's like when you put the glasses on, the movie becomes a lot clearer. It's a lot more understandable. A lot of those really vague, rough patches become very clear. And so we need the glasses to understand the movie more clearly. Well, here's why I bring this up. Last week, Pastor Chris kicked us off on a little mini-series in the book of Psalms. And the Psalms, if you remember, are a compilation of 150 different types of writings. Some are songs, some are poems, some are, of, uh, excuse me, some are, are prayers that have been put to song, some are laments, and they were written over a span of like a thousand years. Moses wrote a psalm, David wrote a psalm, and later, after the exile, other psalms were written. This is a long period of time. There's 150 of them. And when, whenever somebody sat down, they compiled these 150, and they did so intentionally. And Pastor Chris talked about this last week. There's a lot of intentionality in the book of Psalms, and the part that he drew our attention to was that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 serve as an introduction to the entire book of Psalms. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 provide the framework or the lenses for us to be able to read the rest of the psalm. Whoever put the book of Psalms together was very intentional by putting Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 at the very beginning because those are the way we're supposed to see and read the rest of the psalms. Now, you don't need Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 to read the rest of the psalms. You can just pick them up and read them. But this is where the 3D glasses comes in handy. When we have the proper lenses and we put them on, the rest of the psalms begin to make a lot more sense. And we're able to make sense of the nuances, especially those parts that are a little weird and wonky. And this book really just begins to take a new life on of itself. And so next week, what we're going to end up doing, next week what we're going to end up doing is we're going we're to put the glasses on and we're going to play in the book of Psalms. And I'm going to show you how this book really comes alive and can speak to us today. But first, what, we, what happened last week is Pastor Chris clicked in the first lens. He looked at Psalm 1. And if you remember what Pastor Chris said when he looked at Psalm 1 is Psalm 1 basically says there's two ways to live. There's God's way, which leads to life and meaningfulness. And then there's not God's way. That's my technical term. And that just leads to a meaningless life, an empty life. 
And so you have these two ways. And then the psalmist talks about, and Pastor Chris modeled this beautifully, how you enter into that meaningful life is by doing two things. Does anybody remember what they are? You take delight and meditate on the word of God. You take delight and meditate. This is the first lens to understanding the rest of the Psalms. You have to take delight and meditate. And what he talked about with regards to delighting and meditating is this. You can't just open up the book, read it once, shut it, and walk away. That's not meditating. And yet that's how most of us, this guy first and foremost, does this. I used to hate the book of Psalms for a number of reasons, mainly because I didn't know how to read them. I would read it and I'd say, that was confusing, and I'd set it down and I'd walk away and go, I hated the Psalms. Okay, but the truth is, that's because I read it wrong. What you have to do is you have to meditate on it. You can't just read it once and say, you gotta read it again. You gotta chew on it. You gotta think about what it's saying. And that's that best word for meditate. Pastor Chris brought this out last week. To meditate means to chew on something, to get all you can out of it. And that takes time and you process it. And so he modeled this beautifully when he went to, the psalmist says, those who delight and meditate in the law of the Lord, they are like a tree planted by streams of water. And then you saw him last week totally geek out on what it means to be a tree planted by streams of water. And he's like, oh, did you know that I forget what it was. One tree provides oxygen for a year for 10 people. And you're like, no, because you're a dork for looking that up in the first place. (laughs) But that's because he modeled what it meant to chew on this psalm and get more out of it. And it just opened this up and brings a space of delight. That's important because that is the first lens we need to have as we read a psalm. We need to dig in and continue to get more and more out of it. So today we're going to click in the second lens. Today, we're going to see how else we're supposed to read the psalm. And you're going to notice very clearly there is a distinction between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Psalm 1 is very personal in nature. It has to do with our individual relationship with God. Psalm 2 is way more global. It has to do with God's relationship to humanity, or better, humanity's relationship to God. It's a very distinct difference, but you need both lenses to be able to appreciate and engage the rest of Psalms, but really the rest of Scripture. And so today, we're going to put on glasses. We're going to learn to put on our glasses, and then I said next week, we're going to play with the glasses on. That's kind of where we're going. So this morning, I invite you to open up with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. It is on page 374. In your pew Bibles, there's the instructions on how to get it to the Bible app. Psalm 2. As you're turning there, let me tell you kind of my plan for the day. My plan is I want to read through the psalm one time. Okay? I'm just going to read it straight through. And the reason for that is if you were sitting down reading the psalm, this is exactly what you would do. Right? You'd go home, you'd open it up, and you'd just read through the psalm. And then typically we'd set it down and walk away and go, you know, do something else. But what we're going to do after we read through it is we're then going to, in light of what Psalm 1 taught us, we're going to chew on it. So I'm going to show you some of the nuances and interesting things that go on in this psalm, just help you to kind of see what it looks like to, again, meditate on this passage. And you're going to see, wow, there's a lot going on here. And then, after we do that, I've spent like two or three weeks reflecting on this psalm. I feel like it's important for me to just share, here's how this psalm has spoke to me, and honestly how I think it speaks to us as a community. So that's the plan. We're going to read it, we're going to chew on it, and then I'm going to reflect on it. So, Psalm 2. It begins like this. Why do the nations conspire? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they rise up. The rulers, they band together. 
They do this against the Lord and his anointed. They say, let us break their chains. Let us throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven, he laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. Ask of me, and the ends of the earth will be your possession. He said to me, you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, wise up. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. You are to serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or else he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so... Just off the bat, thinking about this in your own head, if you remember Psalm 1, Psalm 1 is a lot cheerier than Psalm 2, right? There's, there's a reason. Every, Psalm 1 and 2 are the introduction to the book. Most people are familiar with Psalm 1. Most people ignore Psalm 2, okay? We don't like the judgmental tones of Psalm 2. It's a little hard to hear at first, so we like to kind of ignore that. It's not comfortable, for us. But there's also a lot of other things going on in this psalm, and I want to show them to you. Did you notice that like Psalm 1, Psalm 2 says there's two ways to live? There's God's way, or there's no way, right? The other way just ends in destruction. There's two ways. Did you also notice that there's three voices that speak in this psalm? Did you notice that? Verses 1 to 3, you have a narrator who speaks on behalf of the kings and rulers of the earth. Did you see that? And if you don't, I invite you, open your Bibles. I'm going to show you. I'm going to kind of point to you a lot. Psalm 2. Verses 1 to 3, there's a narrator who speaks on behalf of the kings and rulers of the earth. Verses 4 to 6, God himself speaks. And verses 7 through 12, verses 7 through 12, the Lord's anointed speaks on behalf of God. He essentially elaborates what it is that God has said. This is important because this psalm is actually broken into four stanzas. Every three verses is a new stanza. So you have verses 1 to 3, 4 to 6, 7 to 9, 10 to 12. I'm just really glad I remembered that in my head. I was really worried about that 7 to 12. I was really, every time I said it in my head, I couldn't get it. But there's four stanzas, and this is important. Because in every stanza, something significant happens, okay? And so what I want to do today is I want to walk you through those stanzas and show you what happens. Did you catch, too, when the psalm opens, it opens with a sound of derision? And if you don't know what derision is, it's... <laughs> that's, that's the technical term. That's the, the, the Greek and toddler speak. L listen to what it says. Why do the nations and the peoples plot in vain? <laughs> Why do they do this? Like this? That's absurd. That's absurd. Why would you do such a thing? And from the beginning, the psalm starts out with this, how could you do such a thing? How dumb are these people that they think they could stand up against our God? What's wrong with them? Against his anointed? What are they thinking? What are they thinking? And then you see the psalm continues to go on and he tells us what they did. It says that the kings and rulers of the earth, what do they do? 
They rise up. This is significant. If you got your own Bible, that's worth underlining. They rise up, okay? And in rising up, they pompously declare in their best William Wallace voice, freedom! Let us throw off the shackles and break the chains of God and his anointed one. I don't want to do their things. I want to do my thing. I don't want them to be led by him. I want to lead myself. I don't want him to make my decisions. I want to make my decisions. I am the master of my own destiny. I don't want to follow him. That's what they're declaring. And they make this bold pronouncement. And then, again, this is where it's just beautiful. They rise up pompously, right? They're just puffing themselves up. And what does God do? Verse 4. The one in heaven, what does he do? He sits. He sits and he laughs. He goes, (laughs) you are going to rise up? You? You you see me? I'm sitting in heaven. God, the nations, they have to rise up from the dirt, from the earth, but not God. God just sits there, and he looks down, and he goes, oh, it's so cute. Oh, my God, it's so cute. And he laughs at them. He mocks them. He scoffs at them. Here's the thing. This distinction of God in heaven is not meant to mark some sort of, like, distance or separation, like there's us here, and then way over there is God. No, no. It's meant to speak of God's grandeur, It's meant to speak of his majesty compared to the people of the dirt. They're of the dirt. He's of the heavens. They have to rise up. They still don't come close to him. So he sits and he laughs. It's beautiful imagery. Beautiful imagery. But this is where it also goes. They they rise up, but God now needs to make it clear to them who's in charge. It's cute that they have their ideas. God's going to allow them to complain. God's going to allow them to, you know, fuss their ideas. They're going to make a deal out of this, and God's just going to go, that's so cute, and he laughs. There's this old Yiddish proverb, old Yiddish proverb that says, man plans, God laughs. Man plans, God laughs. It's this great thing. They have these ideas, and God goes, oh, that's so cute how you do this. But then their planning apparently turns to rebellion, and God goes, okay, that's enough. And so you think at this point, God is going to speak, it says, out of his anger and his wrath, and you're thinking, yeah, buddy, let's get him. This is what I would do if I was God, and let's all be glad I'm not. If I was God at this point, and I was going to show my anger and my wrath, and I had control of lightning bolts, I would pull a Zeus. I'd pull that thing out, and I'd just start smacking people around with my lightning bolts. You want to challenge me? Boom, 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 boom. But what does God do? This is a weird turn of judgment. You see what it says? You rise up. You puff yourselves up. You declare freedom. You have these great plans. Well, let me tell you my plan. I have installed my king on Zion, on my holy mountain. And you're thinking, that is an odd response. That is an odd response. Like, that's not really judgment. Why did he respond that way? Because here's the thing. God is going to let us conspire. God is going to let us plan. God's going to let us do these things. We're going to have these plans. And God goes, that's so cute, but here's the plan. He doesn't have to get emotional. He doesn't have to argue. He doesn't have to do anything. He just goes, that's so great. Here's actually what's going to happen. This is what it is, and this is the plan. I have installed my king on my holy mountain, on Zion. That's what's going to happen. He's the one that's in charge. And so now the the whole book pivots, or the, the whole chapter pivots. And from this point forward, from this point forward, the Lord's anointed speaks. The Lord's anointed speaks, verse 7. 
He said, I will proclaim the Lord's decree, I being the Lord's anointed. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. These are the same words the prophet Nathan spoke to David in 2 Samuel 7, when God promised David that he would build a house for him, a dynasty for him. What it's saying is this, there is a special relationship between the Lord's anointed and all the other nations. The Lord's anointed has been adopted. The Lord's anointed is not like the other kings of the earth. And because the Lord's anointed has been adopted, he has all the rights, privileges, and authority of the Father. Everything the Father has extends to the Son. To prove it, verse 8, the Lord says, Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. I already own it, son. Just ask me and it's yours. You're my child. How can I not give this to you? But then he goes even further, verse 9. He says, You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them like pieces of pottery. What he's getting at here is also really interesting. Not only do you inherit the kings of the earth. Not only do you rule over the earth, but more than that, more than that, you will rule over them. There may be people that plot in vain. There may be people that conspire against you. There may be people that rise up that look like, you know, unbeatable threats. They're nothing. I will show you in my hand, they're nothing more than clay pots. And with your rod of iron, you're just going to go bam, 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 bam. Church, I think this is something we need to hear because we all turn on the news and you look and you see, and I'm just going to be honest, it seems like the great threat is this radical Islam that seems to continue to spread and we don't really know how to combat it. It comes at us from all sorts of places and it's not the only threat that's out there. I'm just saying that is one that's out there and it's hard for us to look at that and go, how, how, how are we ever going to do something about this? What, 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 what do we do? And so we fear and we get crippled in the same way that the Jews, remember when all these foreign powers stood on their borders, they got afraid of them. How are we ever going to stand up to Assyria? How are we ever going to stand up to Babylon? How are we ever, how are we ever, how are we ever? And God just goes, trust me. I will show you. They're nothing. Nothing. This is what God is saying. This Islamic threat, psh, it'll pass. It's a clay pot. Bam. The Lord's anointed will come and take care of this. Okay. Then the Lord's anointed pivots. The Lord's anointed pivots in verses 10 through 12. The first seven to nine, he talks about his identity, his special relationship, his authority and responsibility in the world. Well, verses 10 to 12, he pivots and he basically gives a word of advice. We read this very much as a threat. It's not as much a threat as it is a, a statement of fact and so a piece of advice. Let me, let me show you this. He starts out by saying, listen, you kings and rulers of the earth, be warned. It's time to wise up. Get your act together. It's cute that you got your plans. It's cute that you conspired together. It's so cute how you just rose up so pompously. That's cute, but enough's enough. I've warned you who this God is. I've told you what this God's plan is. I told you he can just smash you like a clay pot. Listen. It's time to change course. And so if you want to change course, here's three things you need to do. You need to serve him with fear. Serve the Lord with fear. That word fear, that's a misnomer. It's better translated reverence. 
And here's the idea behind it. Look at you don't have to like him, but you got to acknowledge this is the king of heaven. It's the same way we talk about when it comes to the president of the United States, right? I don't care what political party you are. I don't care who you are or what time period you're talking about. The person, whoever the president of the United States is, you don't have to like them as an individual, but you respect them because of the office. And the wisdom of the psalmist is essentially this. You need to respect him because of his office. You are just of the dirt. He is of the heavens. So you need to serve him with reverence. You don't like it. You can do it begrudgingly, but you better serve him. And then it says, you are to celebrate his rule with trembling. Celebrate his rule with trembling. That word in Hebrew is so much better than in English. The Hebrew word for celebrate is to shriek joyously. Shriek joyously at his rule with trembling. There is this mixture of fear and awe. And you're thinking, well, what is he getting at with this? What he's getting at is this. Not only is this the God who sits enthroned in heaven, but more than that, this is the God who by his very word spoke and everything came into existence. Whoa. This is the God who with just his breath, he just blew on some water and the river split open or the Red Sea split open. His people crossed it and then he shut his mouth and destroyed the armies of Egypt and Pharaoh along with him. This is the God, more than that, who more than once, not once, but twice has toppled some of the most powerful empires to ever exist on the planet, Assyria and Babylon. We studied this. Overnight, God did this. This God is powerful. So you better recognize you don't mess with him. There should be a fear element <laughs> in his presence. But the reason you do this with joy is because he's willing to be on your side. He's not against you. Remember, this is advice. How we are to live, how we are to enter into a relationship. You're to serve him. You're to shriek joyously with trembling at his rule. Allow him to rule over you, and then you go, <laughs> that's my shrieking joyously. <laughs> I think the best way, too, to understand what shrieking joyously would understand is like when a teenage girl comes across Justin Bieber, okay? It's like they're in complete awe of this man's majesty. This is parentheses, uh, definitely, or quotes, I mean. Um, but they're also like, oh, it's Bieber. They're so excited. Okay, that's the idea. God is on your side. And then finally, he says, not only are you supposed to submit, uh, or excuse me, not only are you supposed to serve the Lord with reverence, not only are you supposed to shriek joyously at his presence, but more than that, you're to kiss the son. I'll tell you right now, this is one of the most complicated sections of this psalm, but more than that, of the book of Psalms. I spent a good long time prepping for this sermon. I probably put three or four hours just on these three words. What are they talking about? What are they talking about? And you can imagine if you read this, there's definitely a Christian bent to kiss his son and that's why they capitalize the S-O-N. But here's the thing, in Hebrew, they never put the vowels in when they originally wrote. Hebrew was written in all consonants, okay? Well, the problem with that is we don't know which word they used right there. And to use the word son 
you're not actually using the Hebrew word for son, you're using a different language for son. And so it's really complicated. What do they mean right here? So this is what I did. I read everything. I read Jewish commentaries. I read Jewish translations. I read Christian commentaries. I read Catholic, LDS. I mean, you name it. I read everybody's translation on this thing. How did they interpret this? The thing that seems to be the universal understanding, regardless of whether it's a Jewish application or a Christian application or an overly Christianized application of this passage, is this phrase, kiss the son, really means we are to submit sincerely to the king. And however you want to define king, whether it's, it's not clear, whether it's talking about the Lord's anointed or God himself, it's, it's really just, it's a weird passage. Weird little phrase, but it means we're to submit sincerely. So in other words, not only are you supposed to begrudgingly serve this person because of who he is and because of his place up high in heaven, not only are you supposed to shriek joyously at the fact that this guy's on your side, but you're supposed to submit sincerely, meaning your outward actions should match your inner affections. Your attitude towards this God should be sincere. You don't have to just begrudgingly serve him. You don't have to just fear that he's in the room and, you know, thankfully he hasn't squashed me like a bug. This God invites you into his presence. Kiss the feet of the sun is a common image when you are allowed close to the king. It's an expression of intimacy. Come here. God doesn't keep us at an arm's distance. He invites us in. This is significant. And so what it tells us is this. Oh, people of the earth, don't scream for freedom. Don't scream for freedom. Instead, turn to the Lord. Serve him. Shriek joyously. Submit sincerely to him. And if you do, if you take refuge in him, you will be blessed. If you don't, you will be destroyed. That is the psalm. There's a lot going on here. And I told you, if you were to just say, well, summarize Psalm 2 in one sentence, I think it's this. There's two ways to live. There's God's way, and there's no way. In the end, God wins. So why not pick the winning team? That's basically Psalm 2's advice. God's going to win. Why don't you just join the winning team? One more reflection on the text before I share my, um, my personal reflections on this. Who's the Lord's anointed? Who's the Lord's anointed? Somebody said Jesus because yes, that is the typical Christian answer. And I will tell you, I'll show you in a second, I think we can absolutely say Jesus. But that wasn't the original person. Who's the Lord's anointed? When the author wrote this, he didn't have any idea about Jesus. He was writing about a person. Who was he writing about? This is where it's interesting. This psalm along with a number of other psalms, are called royal psalms because they're either written to or about or by one of the Davidic kings, one of David's descendants, okay? And so early on, what we believe Psalm 2 was used for was a coronation psalm. We believe at the coronation, the king was to read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together to understand how they are to rule and how they are to reign and stuff like that. It reminds them of their identity and it reminds them of their responsibility. They have a special relationship with the Lord. 
Today, you are my son. I am your father. You are not like everyone else. And if you trust me, I will give you the inheritance of the ends of the earth. I will take care of these threats that exist all around you. I'll take care of it. That's a coronation psalm. That makes a lot of sense. But here's where it gets interesting. And this is where it's really cool that we've been going through the Bible because I can connect the dots for you now. After Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem, remember, they, they completely destroyed the city. They tore down the temple. They tore down the palaces. And in effect, they essentially destroyed the monarchy. They got rid of the kings. The kings kind of exist, but honestly, they fade into oblivion right after the exile. Well, they had all these royal psalms. And so the people are kind of stuck. Well, what, what do we do with these royal psalms? Do we just kind of archive them as some relic of history? Well, we used to have a king, and this is what we thought. No. In fact, what happened is the royal psalms began to have a future element to them. They began to move away from a past or present view of these psalms, and they began to look forward to a future day when a future king would come. And this future king, when he comes, would reestablish the monarchy, reestablish Jerusalem as the, the capital of the world, basically, and would make all things right in the world. This figure became known as the anointed one. The Hebrew word for that is the Messiah. The Messiah. Jesus, when he gathers his disciples, about two years into Jesus' ministry, he gathers his disciples together. And he goes, okay, boys, tell me something. Who do people say that I am? And so some cheer up, chime up and they're like, uh, some say you're a good teacher. And he goes, okay. Others say you're a prophet like Elijah. Okay. Uh, some weird guy, he said you were John the Baptist. I don't really know how that worked out. And Jesus goes, okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter, because this is Peter's personality, shoves his hand up and he goes, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the Christ. That's the Greek word for Messiah. You're the Christ. And Jesus goes, you're right. And in that moment, when Jesus acknowledges the identity as the anointed one, all of these Old Testament prophecies, all of these Psalms, and really everything about the Old Testament Messiah, Jesus takes upon himself. And so just in the context of this Psalm alone, Jesus is saying, absolutely, that apart from me, you will lead to your destruction. But those who take their refuge in me, those who serve me, those who shriek joyously in my presence, and those who submit sincerely to me, they will be blessed. They will be blessed. Jesus owns this identity. Church, I told you from the very beginning, the purpose of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 was to get new lenses so that you can more clearly understand what is going on in the book of Psalms, but really the book of Scripture. And what we see as we look at this is when we take Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and we put them together, what we see is this beautiful point. Psalm 1 says we are to listen to our king and delight in what he has to say. We should hear him and chew on his words. His words are worth meditating on. But it's not just about meditating. Psalm 2 makes it very clear we're also called to act on those words. We're called to respond to him. We're called to serve him, shriek joyously, and sincerely serve him. That's what the point of Psalm 2 and Psalm 1 are all about. And if you have these lenses, I invite you, go and read the book of Psalms this week. I'm going to tell you, the book really comes alive when you know how to actually read it. 
It's no longer a blurry 3D movie. It really is easy. And you're like, whoa, there's so much going on here. And we're, I'm telling you, next week we're going to play. We're going to play. Because I used to hate the book of Psalms, and now I really like it. I really like it. It's interesting to me. And so I want to show you why, and we're going to apply those lenses. But before I close, I told you I've been spending two or three weeks in this psalm, and I wanted to share with you some of my reflections as I've kind of been stewing in it. And here's kind of where it comes. The thing that hit me more than anything else was verse 3 of this entire psalm, verse 3. If you look at it, it says, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. They're, they're declaring freedom, right? We don't want to follow God. We want to do our own thing. Is that not the same sin Adam and Eve made? Is that not really the definition of sin? I don't want to do God's way. I want to go my way. I'm tired of doing this. And the reason I bring this up is because I believe deep down inside all of us is this innate desire for freedom. An innate desire to be the masters of our own destinies, to choose where we go, what we do, what we say, how we say it. We want to do that. As Americans, we've taken this feeling, this idea, and basically put a God stamp on it and said it is our God-given right as Americans to declare freedom. I mean, just think about this. The mantra of the revolution, one of them. Give me liberty or give me death. It's all or nothing, freedom or nothing. If I don't have freedom, what's the point of living? And Americans, we claim this, and I want to be clear. I believe there is a distinct difference between political freedom and unbridled personal freedom. A distinct difference. I believe that it is a good, virtuous thing to have political freedom. It is a good, virtuous thing to have political freedom. It is good to be able to challenge your leaders. It is good to be able to have contrary thoughts. It is good to be able to voice your opinions. That is normal and healthy and good for a society. But unbridled personal freedom, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. The ability to think and do and say whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, hold on. And yet we have this, this idea that we continue to propagate in American culture that says true happiness only comes when you have true personal freedom. Where did we get this? Where did we get this idea that we can do whatever we want? We can sleep with whoever we want. We can say whatever we want. We can buy whatever we want. We can watch whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. Where did we get this? Look, you would never let your children do this. You would never let your children just say, oh, here you go, straight out of the womb, whatever you want to do. <laughs> well, okay, let's say they have to eat. We don't turn to our teenagers and go, have at it. Life is your oyster. No, that's ridiculous, right? Because you know as well as I do, you can't do whatever you want or say whatever you want because as soon as you do something like that, you're going to hurt somebody else. If I can sleep with whoever I want, my poor wife. If I can say whatever I want, your poor children. <laughs> if you can do whatever you want, you're not going to have a job very long. You can't do this. Unbridled personal freedom, it doesn't work. We live best when we are led. 
We live best when we are led. The people of this psalm, they didn't want to be led. They rejected it. Look, here's the thing, and we can now put the pieces together. This is so much fun. When God gave the law originally, this was the purpose of the law. It was to tell us how to live well so we didn't experience pain and suffering. The problem is, we're terrible at keeping the law. Every single one of us. I am so bad at it, right? And so every time I open up the law and I see how I'm supposed to live and I use this as a mirror, all it does is point out my flaws. All it does is show me I'm not good enough. I'm messed up. I'm a sinner. And so what do I do with that? I ignore it. And I go to the passages where Jesus speaks his love and grace over me. But the power of the law, and this is something we need to hear today, the law is good. Because the law makes it very clear that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus stepped in and he didn't just say, well, here, I'm going to lay down a new law. I'm going to take the old one. No, Jesus fulfills the old law. So we're no longer under the old law. The old law still has use. Absolutely. But it's no longer there to judge me anymore. It's been done. It's set aside. It continues to remind me how great my God is and how it reminds me of what it is that Jesus Christ has done for each and every one of us. This is huge. In Christ, we are forgiven and free. That is a huge statement that we need to understand. That is huge. And I lost my point, but that's okay. Because I think the big thing we have to understand is this. When we look at this passage, this passage again continues to remind us that we live best when we are led. We are not meant to do things our own way. And this is why Jesus says to us, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, my ways are easy to follow, and they're good. And what are his ways? Very simply, love God with all you got, love your neighbor as Jesus loved you. And you're thinking, well, that's not easy, I'm terrible at that too. Yeah, me too. But this is the power of grace because what Jesus does is he covers us in this grace goo that no matter how hard you try to get off, you can't get it off of you. You're covered in grace. doesn't matter how much you mess up. But the real beautiful part of this is it's not just some external covering. What we're told is that the Holy Spirit comes into our life and he continues to conform us and transform us into God's character. We can't do this by our own power. This is solely by the grace of God. All we have to do is continue to take the words of the psalmist to heart. We need to recognize our place, recognize who our God is, and serve him with reverence. We then need to shriek joyously at the fact that he's on our side. What do I have to fear? I got God. And out of that, sincerely serve him. Sincerely submit to him. Allow our affections to grow for him. Look, you can't force yourself to love somebody, but what you can do is you can force yourself to be in their presence a little more so that you grow an affection for them. Right? And so you just spend time, you go, God, help me to like you. Help me to see why you're good. Help me to love you. Church, my advice for you today, turn to the Lord and receive his grace. Let me pray. Father, we... We come along with the psalmist and declare that you are good, that your love endures forever, that you are holy and other and not like us. 
Lord, it's powerful to realize that you allow us the space to grumble and you don't just slap us around for it. But that you have put boundaries because you know we live best when we are led. And your son Christ has come and freed us and offers to lead us. And I pray, Lord, that we would truly learn what it means to serve him, to shriek joyously, and submit to him. In Jesus' name, amen.